Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. What's going on, man? Feeling well-rested after the long weekend, Christopher. How about you? Pretty good, man. You have a good Memorial Day? Absolutely. Had a chance to go out to a baseball game. You know, things are uh, things are coming back. I'm excited for the normal life. Um, on today's episode, we talked to uh, one of your professors, actually, Dr. Manish Dixit, professor at Texas A&M in the Construction Science Department. And I'll tell you, I, I enjoyed the talk. I thought it was a great chat. Uh, it also seemed like I was being ganged up on by all these Texas A&M guys. You know, we talked about this idea of um, preparing our future leaders to embrace disruption in AEC. What'd you think? He was, he was your guy. Yeah, so this is probably my favorite episode of the season, even though we haven't finished recording the whole season yet. Um, I think it's already number one. Um, you know, Dr. Dixit was my first professor at Texas A&M. I took two different classes with him. Uh, you know, he didn't really realize, but he was a huge influence for me coming into the construction industry. And I think he's kind of probably one of the big reasons why I'm, you know, where I am now. Um, you I know, love you asked him if he remembered you. Yeah, he, he said he remembered me. I, I believe he did. He did. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it was a great conversation. Um, you know, it was great to hear somebody from academia's point of view, because I haven't really talked to a whole lot of college professors who focus on the AEC industry um, since I left Texas A&M. Um, but yeah, I think people will realize just how intelligent um, these people are, and also, you know, the amount of research that they do that, uh, you know, makes our industry better. I really liked his idea of having, um, a academia and an industry professional have a conversation and get their two different perspectives. And, uh, you know, as he talked, as we talk in the episode, those in academia, they're really testing out and seeing a lot of these technologies before many of us get to see them. And so they're really kind of molding the future there in, uh, in the colleges. It was a good episode. We, uh, we enjoyed having him on. He was a great guest. We hope you get to listen to it, enjoy it, and check back for more. I already know before it even starts that this is going to be my favorite episode of the season because we have a guest who's, you know, really helped shape my career, whether he knows it or not. Um, my favorite professor from Texas A&M University, um, a part of the construction science department there, which is the best construction management department in the whole wide world. Um, Dr. Manish Dixit, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much, Jackson. Um, I really appreciate um, your encouraging words. Um, and thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so thank you. Both, Chris and Jackson. Absolutely. Yep. Chris, uh, you know, he, like he, we were talking about before, um, I've slowly worked my way up within the AEC Disruptors podcast. And, you know, one of his charges to me was to find guests. And, you know, you were one of the first ones I thought of because, you know, most of the time when we have guests on, you know, they are, um, you know, they work for an architecture firm or a general contractor or subcontractor. And I knew it was important for us to get somebody from academia because, you know, you all are kind of on the front lines as far as, you know, forming the future of the industry. And, um, you know, just a little bit of a background. I took Dr. Dixit's uh, plan reading class. It was my first uh, class at Texas A&M and I came in, you know, I was very terrified, you know, coming to this giant school and I've heard, you know, I had heard all these great things about the construction science department, the college that I went to previously, all of my professors had went to A&M. So I was like, that's where I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta get out of here and go to A&M. Um, so I took that class through you and, I, and then I also took um, the BIM class, which was my senior elective. And uh, I was a little frustrated a few during that time just because I spent so many hours in the BIM lab trying to get my projects done when I should have been at Northgate, but that's okay. I forgive you. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, we're really excited to have you. And, uh, you know, I, 
I, I, I definitely want to get your perspective. Um, you know, since the last time I saw you, um, you know, there's been a lot of changes when it comes to construction technology and design technology in general. But first, um, you know, for our audience, um, could you please give us, um, you know, your background and what led you to becoming a professor at Texas A&M? Sure. Thank you, Jackson. Um, I, I think you gave me a good idea. We should, we should have some BIM classes on Northgate. Um, but uh, uh, thank you so much for, for inviting again. Um, I'm Manish Dixit. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Construction Science at Texas A&M University. I'm an architect by training and I'm by profession. I worked for over 10 years, roughly, in industry as an architect. Uh, mostly worked on healthcare buildings, um, commercial, like typical commercial retail uh, type of buildings, office buildings, uh, and also designed some residential. Um, so I worked for 10 years and what I saw is that the industry is not really making any transition. I mean, there's so much to improve in terms of efficiency of material, even like wastage if you look at, um, not just the material, but wastage of time, wastage of money, you know, a reputation of work, um, damage. Um, things are not perfect, you know. Being an architect, I know that my drawings were never perfect. And there were like RFIs and change orders. And so there's like a lot of, you know, scope of improvement. And that's when I decided that I need to go into academia and maybe, you know, learn more about construction. I did my master's here at AM. And then I continued with my research because I wanted to join academia. And then there has to be a research component if you really want to contribute to the industry through research. So then I joined the PhD program. So I graduated in 2009 with my master's. And then I continued with my PhD um, in construction science. So, and then in my PhD, I was looking at more materials because there's so much of wastage. And so I looked at embodied energy which is basically the energy that is needed to manufacture and deliver these materials and assemblies to a construction site. So nobody really talks about that part. Everybody talks about energy of heating, ventilating and cooling or lighting, but nobody talks about how much energy is gone into materials, right? And if you waste that material, that's a lot of carbon emission that you already have added to the environment. So, that was the topic of my research, um, but then I also got interested in technology. So as a PhD student, I started teaching um, this 175, you know, we actually designed the schools, um, which is COSC 175. It's a uh, construction graphics uh, communication. So I designed this course along with other faculty members in 2011, and then we started offering this. And then we had a Revit component um, at that time um, unfortunately, when Jackson, you were, you took this class, the Revit component was gone. Fortunately, that component is back again. So now this course has Revit as nearly half of the grade on a Revit project. So this course has changed a lot. So I started teaching that course and then I finished my PhD in 2013. I went to Sam Houston State in the engineering technology program for a little while. And then I came back here in 2015. Um, as an assistant professor. And since then, you know, you know, I'm here. Um, I haven't moved. Yeah, that construction graphics class um, had a profound impact on me. And we don't really like to throw around product names too much on the pod, but um, that was my introduction to plan grid. And, um, you know, at that time, so this was, you know, fall of 2015. From what I remember with plan grid, it was mainly plan reading. You know, I don't remember it having, you know, a lot of the functionality it has now. Um, but we had somebody come in from the industry and talk to us about it. And uh, I just thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. And like, I, I couldn't believe, you know, that that was where the industry was heading. Just because in my head, I always thought, you know, paper plans, this paper plans, that. Um, and, you know, when I graduated in 2017 and then went on to industry, um, they were evaluating new solutions. And, um, you know, I brought up PlanGrid and then we ended up using PlanGrid and that's what led me to applied software. <laughs> um, 
so you know the fact that like in my very first class at a and m you know there was this focus on construction technology and now you know that intro level class is uh you know you're even getting into revit now like that's really exciting because you know that's where the industry is heading um so that's that's good to hear yeah and you know i i would just talk a little bit when when i was trained i was trained with i don't know whether you know these but they were pens <laughs> new pens uh, they were tracing papers so we were trained in that environment and now look at where the industry is so you know I, I used to carry those, you know, the rolls of sheets, drawing sheets on site, and that's no more there. I mean, we all have tablets, right, smartphones, and then we have apps like PlanGrid or Bluebeam type of things that are guiding us. I mean, you can zoom in, zoom out, take picture, um, submit an RFI, you know, right from the tablet. So it's a completely different industry, you know. So yeah, and understanding like the, you know, I always thought it was important to understand some of the past in terms of for me to be able to use Revit, I had to understand how to draft by hand, at least it, that was sort of the methodology, you know, and how do I want to convey information? And when we're doing it by hand, we got to think a little bit more. And so, you know, how are you even looking to, as you're embracing new technologies and teaching these young professionals, you know, how are you also trying to make sure they understand like the logic of you know, it's changed so much? And do you do you attempt to try to show them how it was done before and, and where we're headed now? Yes, we do. I mean, we, we do talk about, but not too much because, you know, so there are two things we struggle with. One is the, the content. And I, I mean, there's so much to cover within a short period of time. And the next is then we have Revit, which is really quite overwhelming for a freshman initially, right? Or a senior. So print, construction prints, and they are not that familiar with the print side. So the relating plans with elevation and sections, it's it's really challenging for them. For me and you, Chris, it's not because you know we have been trained that way, you know. We, so what I call it is spatial cognition or spatial abilities to connect things and able to visualize. But okay, if it is sitting, then I had to mentally rotate and look up and imagine there is a ceiling or reflected plan view, you know? I'm talking about those kind of abilities are not there. So it's challenging because there's, there's so much to cover within a short period of time. And at the same time, it is in a software which is really, you know, quite nasty in terms of it shuts down and it just freezes the screen and stuff like that. So it's challenging, but we, we do try, for instance, to, you know, to tell them that, okay, when you're looking at a plan, or if, if you want to find a particular type of information that you think is in the wall, then you have to go back and look at a floor plan and floor plan will not give you everything because some details may not be there. Now you go back, and find out along that wall which section is there that is marked, and how do we find that section on which sheet? So things like that. It's a slow process, but they slowly understand how to relate, you know, like a horizontal view with the vertical view, and how to find things. So we we give them some background that how we were trained, but I don't think that they really understand that, you know. The, how how it was done earlier, because for them um, having a drawing board which is on of a size on which you can actually sleep, it's kind of you know unthinkable because you know they haven't seen that you know that kind of environment. But we we have we have talked about that and we do talk about. So I, I also talk about for instance like blueprints. You know what do you mean by blueprints? Um, where does this term came from? You know. I mean, where, how, how, so what is the meaning of this blue? And then we kind of explain to them that it's basically the ammonia print, there was a machine and things like that. So they, they were interested in knowing those things, right? How a particular term um, was coined, but, you know, but rest other things, it's not really, there's not really too much of time, but, and also it's not really too much of, you know, interest in this kind of generation. To, to know what used to happen at that time. It's like if you focus on the ability to think critically, 
and you really try to instill that in someone, then they can always learn a tool later on. But it's that foundation, I guess, is really what you guys are focused on. Correct. And the, the reason we brought back Revit is that, and you know, Chris, if you use Revit and Jackson knows it well, that if you have a model something in Revit, if it is AutoCAD, you can draw a line and that line could mean anything. I mean, it could mean a wall, it could mean a, a leader, an arrow, anything, you know? But in, in, in Revit, when you model a wall or a roof, you need to specify you know, different layers of material that go inside, you know, um, their properties are known, their thicknesses and stuff like that. So if you don't understand the drawing, you cannot model it in Revit. So it's, it's, that's why it's called virtual construction, right? You're actually constructing right from site to the slab, to the building envelope and the roof and all so on and so forth. So it kind of prepares them to read the print and then virtually construct that. So it kind of gives them confidence and also gives us confidence to know that, yeah, they know how to read prints because they are modeling it right in Revit. So it, it was clear for to me from day one of taking your classes and just being in the construction science department. I mean, when you walk into the building, there's this giant BIM lab, you know, that's the first thing you see um, that, you know, there was a real focus on technology within the industry and making sure that students come out of the university with a grasp on that technology. Um, but as we all know, it's constantly changing, you know, I mean, especially, you know, uh, we, we've seen that just this year in the Autodesk ecosystem. There have been huge changes that have happened relating to field-related workflows. Um, so with all of the changes that come out, how do you adapt your teaching to that? And how does that impact the curriculum? So technology definitely, as you said, it's evolving. And one good thing with technology, it improves performance, right? But the... The, the bad side is it, it, it changes. It's evolving, it changes frequently. So the way I do is, and I know some of my colleagues too, is they keep updating themselves, you know? So for instance, if we are teaching Revit, you know, when the newer version comes, there's not much change, but we try to see what has changed between the last one version and this version, you know? We also try to see what new tools are being, you know, proposed or being, actually implemented by the industry. So, so we have, I mean, I, I probably talked to Autodesk representative um, at least a dozen times in a year. And we, I, and I am a rep uh, for Autodesk for, um, for um, Texas Island. So whenever they had to organize a workshop for a new tool that they came up with, they'll contact me and I'll organize and have them organize a workshop on, in College of Architecture. So, what happens is if there's a new tool, a new version, we, we actually know it because we have been talking to them. So it's not that we haven't talked to them in a year or two. So, and they tell us that here is something new we introduce, you know, and then we create a workshop for faculty members as well as for students. And students can learn, faculty members can learn and see what has changed, what are the new tools that are come up with. So, you know, constantly updating, and maintaining a connection with the technology company, I think that's a good approach to kind of keep you up to date. On that same note, you know, I mentioned before how I first got introduced to PlanGrid at Texas A&M. And once I went to the industry and, you know, we were trying to figure out what was the best tool for us, I brought that up. Um, do you consider universities to be indirect uh, drivers of technology in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I would say that even not only indirect, they are also direct drivers. I mean, they may not be the only one, but you know, of course, because you know, when, when you talk about technology, let's talk about what is the, the biggest disruption going on right now, you know? We're all at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, look at, look at where the construction is going. We are trying to mimic manufacturing industry. You know, uh, we are trying to mimic the assembly line in, in automotive industry. And the reason, because 
we have had you know really sluggish um, productivity since the last decades. I mean, so many decades. We haven't improved yet. So what we are trying to see is, can we automate things? You know. So if you look at large-scale 3D printing, you know that's one of the major disruption going on. Construction robotics. You know, robots are being trained by major construction companies. You know. And there's already commercial solution, right? You know that SAM 101, uh, which is a brick laying robot mm -hmm. by construction robotics company. So those kind of things. So think about, you know, these type of, you know, disruptors, which are already there. And we know that automation, construction automation specifically is inevitable. I mean, no matter what, it's gonna happen. You know, if there is higher efficiency and productivity, Industry will go, whether gradually or radically, we don't know, but it's going to happen. So what is happening is when such technologies or disruptors come um, initially, they require a lot of research. Um, so I'll give an example, spot the dog, you know, the Boston Dynamics, you know, that dog robot is amazing. You know, it can do a lot of things, can jump around, and it's ideal for construction side because, you know, on construction sites, some chaotic, and you need a robot that can maneuver easily, right? So it's a perfect fit. But what exactly it can do is still not clear. Um, so, you know, so that's where the role of academia comes in. So there are, are professors who are teaching, but they're also researching. And they are, you know, getting access to spot type of robot, and they're training and trying to see how construction performance can be improved. So what I'm saying is when technology is introduced, it may not be specifically for construction industry, right? But how can we make use of it for construction? That depends on research, you know, and research could involve, you know, maybe training that robot uh, for a longer time and then seeing what are the pitfalls, you know, we train, but yeah, it could do certain things, but certain things are still not possible. So we are definitely doing reality capture, you know, using spot. We are flying drones for reality capture, you know, but there's still so much to be done, you know, and that can only be done through research. Um, and academia is an ideal place for research because as you know, our department maintains strong connection with research as well as with industry. I mean, we have roughly, you know, around 200 industries as part of our, our construction industry advisory council, you know, so that's, that's what I'm saying that academia is, in my opinion, is a direct driver, you know, may not be just one. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. That's such a great point because here we have at Applied Software, we have this renewed effort to focus on the concept of innovation. And one of the things we talk about is the idea of uh, disruption will come from places that were not in our industry, that we're not even looking at yet. And the idea of looking outside, using um, academia and research to look outside to see how are other industries utilizing automation? How are they utilizing robots and all those kind of things is such a great point that I think sometimes we miss, we miss that. And so it seems like, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud that it's like currently, it seems like your career is this like linear process of you go to college and you're kind of focused on research and then you go into the workforce and then you just continue on. But there's never that sort of feedback loop back to your foundation of research. And looking more at organizations that maybe they build in that feedback loop of, we get these individuals that come out of college where they're already in that mindset how does that company create that relationship back to said 
um, university so that we can kind of continue that research and it's not just this linear process that we all go through. Right. So no, you, you, I think you, you made an excellent point. Like that, that loop is extremely important. And unfortunately, I mean, until recently, it never happened. You know, there was no formal or even informal process. So the way now it's happening is that we as faculty members uh, from academia, we're reaching out to companies. So we recently did with one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Rikoski, we did a research in which we actually interviewed a major construction companies which have a major innovation division, you know, and they are really looking at technology and how they can adopt technology to improve their performance. So we interviewed those type of companies. We also interviewed companies which are technology companies mainly, you know, so they're coming up with different robots, um, different types of drones, uh, different types of software. So again, hardware and software both. What we found out that, that these companies are now really interested. Earlier, I, if I talk about six years back, seven years back, that wasn't the case. But now they realize that the importance of technology first, and second, the importance of partnering with university, because that's where the, you know, cheap research is. I mean, you can hire a student, right? And not pay so much, but you can have, you can accomplish a lot of research, you know? Because that's where the knowledge is and that's where the workforce is for research. So now we are seeing this, this loop being kind of formalized in which companies are actually willing to work with us on research. Um, they are also willing to pay. You know, I let me also talk about that if you see this uh, disruptor of automation or what I call digitalization of information, these are two major disruptors. And what is also happening is you see a different segment of business growing now, you know, with, um, I don't know whether you heard about these companies like SiteAware um, or Okibo or Coast Robotics. These companies are not mainstream construction companies. I mean, they don't do construction, but what they're doing is they're providing technology support to construction industry. So you see that, and, uh, a completely different slice of business is now growing, you know, because construction companies realize that they cannot maintain technology because technology changes every six months. So how many times they're gonna train their staff, you know, because they, they have a major responsibility of construction, right? So now there are companies which are programming drones and flying drones and helping them capture the progress, right? Now they don't have to worry about first buying a software, you know, maintaining the hardware, training their staff. There's a third party that is doing that. So there's this business which is growing and it's gonna be very important in the coming 10, 15 years. You will see a huge explosion in that sector which provide technology support because that's where the knowledge will be and technology support will be. So even those companies are now interested. So. We recently, our department recently, you know, we are, we are trying to get a PhD program in construction science. Um, one of the biggest argument made earlier was that, well, is there any research um, in construction? Now that argument is, is gone because there's so much need of research and industry realizes that, academia realizes that. So now we are seeing that, you know, these companies are coming back, our students, at the master's level or even PhD level. They are going out and they're working for these companies, not as a field engineer or project engineer, but as you know, maybe VDC support or research and development um, staff, you know, doing research. So I see that it's, it's now started happening. So that loop that you talked about, Chris, is now I see a lot, it's, it's happening. And in the coming time, it's gonna be much more intense. I remember reading it, um, something was talking about, you know, we all have access to the same tools and soon like your competitive advantage as an organization will simply be in how quickly you can transfer knowledge from one individual to the next and transfer new knowledge. And so I think that's why we're seeing more of these research departments type pop up. And I mean, we're now looking at where 
that for a basic regular architect, they're kind of expecting you to have programming skills and like the skill sets are starting to change of what's required. And so, I mean, I do think there's a huge place for that in the, in the world now. Yep. Yeah, I want to go back to this loop that we were talking about, because one of the things that really drove me to want to go to school at A&M was that, you know, the members of the CIAC um, helped to build the curriculum. And, you know, the reason why they do that is because, you know, they hire a lot of their entry level people out of A&M and they want them to be able to hit the ground running. And, you know, I'm really appreciative of the fact that, you know, you all, um, you know, use them to help build the curriculum because whatever I graduated, you know, I noticed, you know, people who may have come from, you know, different universities were not as ready to hit the ground running. And when I got there, I was shocked by how much I actually knew, partly through, you know, like the technology that we used um, as well as, you know, just the general workflows that get taught through A&M. Um, I do want to go back though. We had mentioned, you know, old school methodology versus new school methodology. And, you know, it's no secret. We were talking about this back when I was at A&M that the, um, industry is aging. You know, there's more people going out than are coming in, which is partly why automation is so important. But um, I do remember while I was there learning some old school methodology, specifically around estimating <laughs> and actually, you know, estimating from paper plans. And then the next class I took was, you know, more through the on-screen takeoff and things like that. Um, but, you know, when I first came to the industry, um, we had a lot of older superintendents who had been doing it for such a long time. And, you know, for a lot of them, it seems like there was a little bit of a disconnect when it came to like them versus like, you know, the young hotshot PMs who are pushing these new tools and adoption was an issue. So, you know, do you think it's important to at least touch on it like a little bit in the university, how things have always been done. That way, you know, people who are coming into the industry and trying to get the older professionals to adopt, you know, they can kind of relate the new technology to the way things have been done in the past. Yeah, no, I, th I think that you've made a very good point because, and I have seen it because I, as I told you, I was trained on an old school fashion, you know, but, because I'm teaching technology now, why I'm doing that? Because I had a vision. I thought that, okay, I cannot live in my small world. You know, that, no, this is the way it should be done because change is inevitable. You know that, right? It's gonna happen no matter what. If you don't like it, you'll be thrown out of the industry. Why? Because the industry is progressing that way. You know, so we have to realize that change is inevitable. And the biggest challenge is resistance to change. That's our nature, right? We don't want to go out of our comfort zone, right? And that's where that's the biggest challenge. And but in our, you know, in in, in education, in construction education, I talk about these things to my students. I I at least started now that you know what I'm teaching you is knowledge so far. It's the technology that we are here. However, you know, to, whether you'll be able to click on an icon in Revit in, in the coming five, 10 years, I don't know. You know, it may be that there are virtual screens. It may be, I mean, who thought about Zoom? Just tell me, who, who ever heard about Zoom before 2020? But now we all know that, right? It's changed our lifestyle completely. So one thing, especially I do in my classes is tell them that what I'm teaching you is not the end of the world. This is not it. You know, you have to constantly think and think not tomorrow, but in 10 years, in 15 years, and think about where the world is going. And you actually know it very well because there are companies like, you know, McKinsey, you know, who are 
giving you projections in terms of where the industry is heading. You know, what's happening to labor? Um, is what's happening to technology? Where it is going? You know, what kind of skills may be needed in the coming 10, 20 years? It's not just McKinsey. I mean, IBM, Google, uh, Microsoft, they talk about it. They have reports and reports coming out every year. So you can actually look at some of these type of, you know, literature, you know, and just kind of understand in 10 years, what could happen possibly? And to prepare yourself and to make sure that you're competitive in that kind of world, you can start looking into ways in which you can update yourself, your technical skills. What can you learn more, for instance? You know, I asked them this. Uh, I, I, I think I asked, I must have asked this question to you also, Jackson, in my BIM class. I, I always ask them, do you know which language will be extremely important in the coming 10 to 20 years? And I get all sorts of answers. I like, okay, so is it Spanish, English? Do you think it's Mandarin? Um, sometimes it's jokingly say that, is it Hindi because I'm from India? And I'm like, no. I said, the only language that will be important is, is programming language. Why? Because automation is, is penetrating every part of our daily life. Whether you're a doctor, dentist, or construction manager, or architect, you will be using some sort of technology or a robot in coming 20 years. The problem is that you need to customize that. And if you need to customize, you need to know their language. Robots don't speak Spanish or English or you know, their language is programming. You know, the script may be English, but you know, we need to understand how to communicate. So that's another example I give them that, you know, it's you need to continue updating your skills. And to do that, you need to have a futuristic vision. You know, always think in future, what will happen in 10 years, 15 years. Um, and that way you, you will know what kind of skills you can, you know. You, you can target, you know? So that's one approach that I take, you know, kind of taking them out of this old school type of thing. And I tell them, no, old school is important. It's not that we are trashing it. It's not, I'm old school, but I, I understand it's important because whatever we have today is built upon that. You know, all these technologies you see is actually learned from what we did in old school. But I think that it's very important for students to understand that first, that they need to update themselves in terms of skills. You know, you got your bachelor's, you got your master's. No, that's not it. No, that, that's not where education stops. Education never stops. You know, learning never stops. I'm still learning. I'm still learning rabbit, even after teaching it for almost 10 years now. So we have to understand that we want to instill in, among students this ability and proclivity to keep updating their knowledge and skills so that they understand that the future is more technology dominated. And because technology evolves quickly, they need to update themselves. You know, so it's this futuristic version. So that's, that's the type of thing that we talk about. However, it's not really you know, included in our formal curriculum. And now we are trying to do that with time. I think the idea of built on the old school is an important thing to push forward because I know when I came out of school, I kind of had that feeling of being a hot shot because I understood how to use the technology. But what I didn't really learn until I, I sort of matured as a person and as a professional is that the mentorship that happens is a two-way street in the profession. And so had I gone into it with the mentality of what I know now is built on the old school and part of my position now is to help potentially educate the, the senior professional on how to use the technology, but be able to also accept that that senior professional is transferring his or her knowledge. To me, it's just a different knowledge. Understanding that that mentorship is not just mentor, mentoree, but really mentor, mentor. Um, from a young professional all the way up, I think really should help push our industry forward because it's not so contentious of I'm new and you're old. It's I have a different way of thinking from you and we can both get better if we learn from each other. Right, right. And that's why I always, and I, I don't know, Jackson, if you remember, I, I give examples of, you know, senior estimators still being hired and kept by these companies. They may be 60, 70, probably 80 year old, 
But the good thing with those people is that they can look at your on-screen takeoff type of estimate or Excel sheet, and they can look at a number and they can say, hey, there's something wrong in that number. And the reason they, say, they can say it because they have years of knowledge that no, this task could not cost that much, or there's something wrong in that. So we need to understand that technology is there, but the, the, the problem with technology is that you can make a mistake somewhere. And you know, whoever, we all have used Excel sheets, right? We know that if we, we entered a formula wrong somewhere, it could make a huge difference. We may not even be able to catch it. But those kind of people, they look at your estimate and say, hey, there's something wrong there. You need to check that, you know? And that's where I say that, you know, we cannot, what we need to do is bring that old school knowledge into the new school or technology dominated world and use it for our desired, you know, goals. And that's, that's what is needed. So um, I agree with you, Chris, that, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's, a, it's a loop of knowledge transfer. So old school people, they may not, I mean, somebody who is in, in his 60s or 70s is probably reached to a level of vice president of you know, the company or at the management level. So probably they don't need to learn revenue for sure. You know? um, but the knowledge that they have accumulated over time, you know, if you constantly bring them in, in academia, in practice and you know, kind of have them engage with the new generation, um, that knowledge could really help the new generation to not just blindly follow technology, but be aware of certain things that may go wrong. You know, So I think that's very important. So on this podcast, we like to talk about you know, the disruptive technologies that are coming out. So we've talked about computational design, generative design, blockchain, and AEC. From your perspective, what do you think is going to be the most disruptive technology going forward in the industry? So I would, again, this is my opinion, but I would say that if you look at 3D printing, um, large-scale 3D printing, it may not happen the way it is. Because I hate printing buildings with concrete because concrete is not really very highly environmentally sustainable material. Um, but, you know, you have to understand that what is the biggest problem in construction industry? The first problem, it's still labor dominated. We still have people. When you have people, what's the problem? The problem is that ego, you know, I cannot work with that guy. That guy cannot work with me. Or, or I don't really have good rapport. Um, somebody didn't finish it on time. Somebody just slacked off. Um, it's too cold. It's too hot. It's raining, you know? We know all these are major problems, right? Guess what? You know, if you look at 3D printing, we are printing with a single material. That's the first thing. So think about an, a wall assembly, which has five or six different types of material in it. That's traditional wall assembly and look at the 3D printed wall assembly, which has just one material, two material at the most. What's gonna happen? Major trades will be gone. And you know that, and I'm not saying that we have to get rid of trades. What I'm saying is, when you have less number of people in the loop, in the construction supply chain, first, your profit increases because the markups are gone, right? More the people, the more the markups, right? Second, if you don't have many people involved, then that's sequel because it's sequential, right? So, you know, there's a preceding, like there's a following activity that depends on the earlier activity. Those kind of problems will be gone. So your schedule will be tight. So not only you improve your time and money, you are more also efficient because if you're printing with the material, you don't have to cut out, you know, um, gypsum board and throw away the, you know, the waste or most of the materials have like five to 20% waste because simply because they are manufactured in standard sizes and you have to cut out different pieces. But because you're printing with the material, your waste is almost nil, right? You can reuse that material later on. You can stop printing. So I would say that if you look at the large scale 3D printing or additive construction or construction robotics, 
that would be the largest disruptor. Um, I don't know if we will be able to use it in the coming five years, but definitely after 10 years, you will see a lot of robots working on job sites. And I don't call them robots. Uh, that this term that many reports have been using, they call it cobot. Cobot is a collaborating robot working with a human worker. So I don't think that we'll get rid of um, you know, humans from construction sites, but they will be working alongside robots for sure. Um, so I think in my opinion, that's gonna be a, one of the largest disruptors. That's exactly what you said back in uh, fall of 2017. I remember that specifically and it's been tattooed in my brain. And Chris will even tell you how much I bring up 3D printing and me saying, we gotta get somebody on who's a, you know, like a 3D printing and construction expert. Um, you know, and, you know, the industry is moving towards that automation. Um, the, the margins are already so thin, you know, and at the end of the day, what's your biggest risk? It's labor, you know, every time, especially if you work for a subcontractor, like I did. Um, so when we hear about this idea of like the population, I mean, in theory, we hear about the population boom, even though that may not necessarily be true currently, but the population boom, the lack of workers, the lack of having the, the buildings required to support them um, in the next 20, 25 years. And so it seems like it all points to that. Um, it's just whether or not we, we get there or, or adopt it or not. And I think what will maybe happen is, you know, uh, construction is such a laggard in their adoption of technology, but then they get thrusted, like what just happened this past year. A lot of people said, I can't work remote. I can't do this or that or whatever. Well, now they've been forced into it. They've gotten used to it and now they want to keep it. And, and I think that ends up kind of maybe being a catalyst for construction adoption of technology. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, COVID pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic actually um, lowered the water. So we could see some opportunities we kept ignoring since last so many years. As I said, like Zoom was there, but nobody heard about Zoom that much in 2019. But suddenly now everybody knows, right? And now we see that a lot of remote operation of construction vehicles, construction equipment is now, um, is already there. You can remotely operate things, you know? So uh, I would also add to, to this disruptor, it's not just efficiency and productivity. It's also safety. If you look at the safety record of our industry, it's really not that great, you know? So look at some, some of the tasks that we do and that is so unsafe, you know? And if you bring in a robot to do that, you know, you can, you know, you can reduce so much of injury and even deaths, you know, from construction site. So that's another thing. The, the second thing is there's a lot of work which is repetitive, you know? So like, amazing you know this only job is to put those units together you know those kind of jobs will be gone because a robot can do first and second you know you in my opinion human brain should be used for more creative tasks than a repetitive one you know because you know we all have some sort of talent and that can be used so if there's anything which is unsafe and repetitive I think we should, that's, those are the type of tasks that are the prime candidate for, for robots, you know, to do. So just wanted to make sure that safety and, you know, morale is, is also important. You know, our theme for this season is disruption, um, which, you know, they call us the AEC disruptors. So that's gonna be our theme for this season. And we've asked every guest this, um, but how would you define disruption? So disruption I define at, at multiple levels. So for, for instance, um, so there are three, three major components, I would say, you know, so one is the, the industry, right? So which is, you know, full of these technologies, the new things coming up, and we have deadline to meet, we have profit to be made. Um, so that's, that's the industry. But then there's the society. Right, um, where you know your people, your workers come from, your staff comes from, you, and then you have third company which is environment, you know. And I would say that the disruption, in my opinion, is when I say the largest disruptor, I just don't mean to say just the industry, because that's not how it happens. So 
I'll give an example. Like when BIMK, building information modeling, it was a major disruptor, right? For the industry, because it changed, it's digitized all of that. All of the information that you used to see on physical drawings became binary, yeah, digitized, right? So it was a major disruptor. Um, did it disrupt society that much? Yes, it did, but not that much, you know? Did it um, disrupt the environment? It did, but not really in a big way. But in fact, if, if we talk about 3D printing, large-scale 3D printing or robotics, it, it's gonna disrupt society a lot. And I'll tell you, because there's a major skeptical labor force, current workforce is skeptic and doubtful and has nagging fear about automation. Will I have a job in the future? That's the biggest impact on society. If the society is skeptic, you know, that will be the biggest resistance to overcome in the, in the future because if they don't want that technology, you will not be, you will not succeed in bringing in that technology to industry because society is skeptic about it. You know, look at environment. When we talk about 3D printing, as I said, there's so much you can see in terms of material, in terms of travel. I mean, look at so much of transportation is involved, you know, because you, simply because you're using so many materials in your buildings, right? When you demolish a building, tell me which is the most recycled material. It's metal, right? That's it. But a building has probably dozens of material, you know, so your ability to recycle simply goes down because you have so many materials. But if you are printing with a single material or maybe a couple of materials, now you can recycle it well, right? So what I'm saying is when I said disruptor, it's industry is disrupted definitely, but also your society and environment, um, all three are disrupted immensely. So that's why I call as a major disruptor because the impact you see is all these three dimensions. That was an amazing answer. That so, was the best uh, one yet, maybe. <laughs> that's right. So uh, I, I just wanted to say, I forgive you for uh, making me spend all of those hours in the BIM lab my last semester. It's definitely uh, proven to be worth it. Um, thank you, you so much. You brought him for on just to give him a hard time. <laughs> right. Well, right. It's, it's, it's another way around, right? Uh, I had some unfinished business. <laughs> But uh, we really appreciate you being on. This has been amazing. Um, thanks again. And uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap up with that. Yeah, this was great. I appreciate you joining us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2021.